millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Des Bishop Podcast. This is a special bonus episode that I'm putting up because I feel like it's very important at this juncture. I've seen a lot of anti-vaccination information running around online. So I thought, you know what? I'm putting this up straight away. I'm not putting it up as next week's ep. I'm putting it up as a bonus ep, despite the fact that it would have been great to have an ep in the can. I'm not doing that. This has to get up immediately. So I, um, I've chatted to David Robert Grimes. Let me read who he is first, and then I'll tell you why I was chatting to him. David is a physicist, cancer researcher, and science writer. His work encompasses everything from how tumors use oxygen to why conspiracies tend to fail. He has a strong focus on public understanding of science and medicine. Contributor to the BBC, RTE, the New York Times, the Guardian, the Irish Times, and PBS. He received the 2014 Maddox Prize and his first book, The Irrational Ape, While We Fall for Disinformation, Conspiracy Theory, and Propaganda, is out now from Simon & Schuster, UK. Releasing in the USA next year, March 2021, as good thinking. So uh, that's that's his official intro. It's very rare that we do like an official uh, intro on the Des Bishop podcast, but I feel like this is uh, this is more serious. Uh, obviously, I, I'm still me chatting to David, but I got to know him originally from the controversies that I've mentioned many times about the HPV vaccine, and he sort of supported me on Twitter, also uh, helped me with information, sent me some emails, and I just messaged him yesterday on Twitter, and I said, hey, would you fancy a chat about anti-vaccination, vaccine misinformation, the importance of vaccination, and I ended up getting so much more than I expected because he talks a lot about the psychology of the why conspiracy theories are attractive, uh, a lot of information on what's going on in the human mind and why it's attracted to certain types of information on the internet. Obviously, we talk about a little bit about the history of anti-vaccination, uh, why there's a sort of a vaccine complacency in society, whether COVID uh, as a global pandemic, international crisis will change that. Is this the kick in the ass that society needed? We discuss all this. Um, I'll let you guys listen. I'll be back at the end of the episode. Don't forget five stars on iTunes, Patreon, every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, patreon.com forward slash Des Bishop, uh, at Des Bishop on Instagram, at Des Bishop on Twitter. All the feedback, welcome. If you completely disagree, that's welcome too. I'll read out some of your disagreements on our scheduled app next week. Um, but most importantly, reviews on on Apple Podcasts, uh, five stars on Apple Podcasts, really helps our chart position. Uh, you guys are the best. We'll talk to you at the end of the episode.
So, so first of all, thanks for for coming on the podcast. I, uh, I'm I'm sure that you're sick. Are you actually having to talk about this a lot again lately? I, I guess it's 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 going, it's undergone this kind of renaissance because a few years ago, when we were beating the, uh, you know, this this anti-vaccine propaganda is doing serious damage. Yes, people were like a little bit complacent about it, and they were saying, "Oh, it probably won't do that much. It's just a few cranks." And I think this year people see very clearly what happens when a few cranks become part of a narrative. So I'm doing it a lot, but I don't object to doing it, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, no, that's how I got to know you. Because originally we got to know each other on Twitter because I had done a piece about the HPV vaccine and started to get all this, you know, all the usual stuff coming back at me and you and uh, uh, Dr. Dr. Bohin, a few, a few other people kind of were, were, were backing me, made me feel like I was, uh, I was doing the right thing. Because it can be hard sometimes. People really, the, the anti-vax movement, they really try to hit you on a personal level. Absolutely. And one of the things they will do to try and discredit you is they will try to undermine you as a human being. And it's the whole thing. When you play, um, you know, think play, the, play the ball, not the man. But if you're really bad at playing the ball, say the facts aren't on your side, it's much easier to try and individually discredit. And certainly during the um, the Irish HPV confidence crisis about the vaccine, we had a lot of that going on. I had people ringing my boss at the time. I was still working between Oxford and Queens. And I had people ringing my, my poor, unsuspecting boss, kind of going, you should fire this guy. He's a terrible human being. And it was all organized. It was all orchestrated. It was kind of by numbers, but a lot of people got that. So I wasn't anyway unique, and I'm sure you you got a fair amount of it as well. And that's the kind of tactic you're dealing with, but you have to understand why you're dealing with that tactic. And one of the major reasons that you're experiencing that is because this is not um, a position based on facts or, or reasoning. This is an ideological and emotional position. So a lot of these people uh, believe this very, very deeply, it's because it makes sense to them. They see the world is divided into natural and unnatural, safe and synthetic. And their whole worldview is based around that. So if you come up there with some information that undermines their worldview, to them, it is acceptable to go after you personally. And the psychology behind this is fascinating. There's a thing called identity protective cognition. And this is the idea that we are our ideas. Now you think of it, on the face of it, in science anyway, you often have an idea and it turns out to be wrong. So you change it and it's not a personal affront. It's like, that's fine. That's fantastic. Mm. But in reality, we all do this. Say your favorite sports team and someone goes, Hey, they're playing a bit crap this season. You take that personally yes. because that idea is part of your identity. Yeah. So I, you're mean, I, an awful I, lot I often this. think that, that so much of this stuff from anti-vax to politics all seems to be, you pick a side and you live or die by that side, regardless of right or wrong. Which is awful. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is, I mean, I, I, I keep telling my students, and I mean, in, in, in the book I've recently written, I keep trying to make this point. There is no shame in being wrong or changing your mind. The only shame there is, is if you refuse to do so when the evidence dictates that you should. And yet, because we have this psychological bias where we think we have to be right and we think we have to be on the right side and the other side is all wrong, we lose all nuance, we lose all subtlety. And in the extreme cases, like the anti-vaccine movement, we go into this place where facts become, you know, you become impervious to them. And that is not a situation we want to be in. And you mentioned politics there, and I think it's worthwhile mentioning the same biases exist in, in politics. 
And all you get is a more divided, more extreme world, which is pretty much the last thing we need right now to solve the problems that we're all facing collectively as a society. Yeah, which is something I, I kind of wanted to get into later. But since we're talking about it, <laughs> it's unfortunate that, and we'll, we'll keep it focused on on the, the vaccination stuff. I don't know why vaccination somehow became one of the sort of list points of what you believe in if you take a certain position. Now, of course, this is not 100%. It doesn't fit uh, you know, neatly into two columns, but it seems that uh, vaccination, particularly in the United States, uh, if, if you're Republican, for example, you have a much higher chance of being uh, anti-vaccination. How, uh, why is it that vaccine, like vaccination became controversial even before COVID, which has turned this into such an international issue? That's a really good question. And it, it kind of, to answer it, you've got to split into where people go down on this thing called their web of belief. So the philosopher W.V. Quine talked about our beliefs. And he said, instead of them being this, you know, we have individual little modular components. That's not how it works at all. Everything in what we believe is connected in some way to something else that we believe. And it's a big thread like a spider's web. So, for example... Let's say uh, I deal with conspiracy theorists a lot. I do some research on them and I, I look at how they work. So let's try to understand that. An observation we have is that conspiracy theorists never, almost never only have one conspiratorial belief. They have a whole plethora of them all attached. And the reason why is kind of easier to understand with Quine's model. Because actually, if you've altered your web of belief to say, accept one thing, let's say you really want to believe that natural medicine is the only medicine. Like you really want to believe that homeopathy is the best thing, right? And the scientific evidence says to you, well, this doesn't work. This is based on discredited theories and the evidence has never supported it. So you really want to believe this one thing. This is your motivating belief. So suddenly you have to find a way to diminish the science around it. So you pull on the web going, well, who believes scientists anyway? Then you pull on the other web, well, all this medical research, that's all biased. And very quickly, you pull on the web, well, there's obviously a conspiracy to suppress the, uh, the efficacy of natural medicine. And then very good, well, well, well vaccination, that's, um, that's supported by mainstream medicine. Oh, we can't trust that either. And you start pulling these threads and you find that these groups who tend to have their beliefs very, very deeply intertwined. And that's why they hold multiple, you say, conspiracy theories at once. They're often motivated by one ideological tenant that pulls on everything else. And it's the reason why all false beliefs are harmful, even if you don't realize that they are. There's no level of, of healthy false belief because it's impacting something else and how you interpret something else as well. So when you talk about, say, Republicans in the States, Republicans, say, are dismissing uh, elements of climate change. And why are they dismissing elements about that? Well, maybe they're hardcore free market libertarians. And the idea of regulation, it's a bridge too far for them. So it's easier for them to diminish, well, science doesn't know everything. So it's easy to do that to a lot of other things. But I will also jump in and say with the anti-vaccine stuff, it's actually on both sides of the political spectrum. Yeah. And I know that the political spectrum is very much a, 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 a 2D, a 3D figure, but even so, it's very much all across the board, but they're all motivated by the same ideas. A rejection of something for another ideological reason, and that substitution pulls in everything. So we never hold bad ideas in isolation. We hold them in concert. And it's because we, we fundamentally suffer when we start subscribing to a discredited belief. And yet, because we have this human instinct to hold on to them because they emotionally resonate with us, we get ourselves into all sorts of trouble. <laughs> really do, you know? Yeah, because it, it's it's amazing how uh, vaccines specifically are just, it's immediately controversial these days. Now, I remember as a child, 
you know, and of course your childhood memories are, are not the most reliable thing, but I, I never, there was never a hint of, in the air of negativity towards vaccines. Whereas take today, you have a global pandemic and the, before vaccine, before the vaccine was even created, people like Robert Kennedy, these people were coming out and saying, there's no way I'm taking the vaccine before it even existed. And the minute that it was introduced, there was images online of look at this toe, you know, like, like um, immediately going after the vaccine with no information whatsoever. A hundred percent. So you're, you're correct in many observations there. And we really need to talk about this one because this is my, my major point of motivation on all things disinformation related. So when we were younger, um, and I, I don't want to say you're older than me, Dave. I'm 45. Probably, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. You're ten, you're, you, got, you got 10 years on you me. You're, not that on. you're a millennial. Yeah, you you're a, a millennial. Yeah, yeah. Just about, just about. I scraped in as a millennial. But yeah, one of the things about that is that you are correct in one way. There's always been, now, there has always been a hardcore ideological anti-vaccine cohort. They've been small in number, but they've been very vocal. And they've existed since the time of Jenner in the 1700s, the first immunizations, right? And they have all sorts of... They used to think that uh, the practice of vac- vaccination was sinful or it was um, undermining God's will. There was all these kind of ideas, but they've always been a fringe. And in the 20th century, we saw the advances of vaccination on a huge scale. No longer did you see people twisted from polio or dying from smallpox or broken and deafened by measles. These common images of, of childhoods of your parents and, and my parents and even their gr- and grandparents the things that used to remind them of how dangerous you know, these diseases were have now faded into the background. So a level of this is complacency that you suddenly forget that then people then go, oh, why do we need vaccinations anyway? Sure, no one gets measles or no one gets polio. And you're like, yeah, the reason no one gets measles or polio is because we have vaccination. Go back two generations and your childhood deaths were off the chart. And that has happened in a very rapid space. I mean, the, the, the 20th century was absolutely incredible for doing this. We, we turned around infant death around the world because of this. But the other factor that I think is more important, and you mentioned Robert uh, Kennedy Jr., uh, Robert F. Kennedy, a lo- lovely gentleman, of course. Um, he is a, an ardent dyed-in-the-wool anti-vaxxer and has been for many, many years. So you're right that even before we had a COVID vaccine, there was disinformation spreading about it. And disinformation is the fascinating thing. I have a paper from the year 2000, so before social media, and it was pointing out that the internet was rapidly becoming um, a haven for anti-vaccine disinformation. It was actually arguing that there was more disinformation about vaccination online than there ever had been. Now, that was before Facebook. That was before Twitter. That was before MySpace. You know, this is like, we're going back a long time. So the anti-vaccine movement, the activists realized that the online space was something they could really dominate. And dominate, they do. They absolutely have control of information flow. There is more anti-vaccine propaganda online than there is reliable information. And it perpetuates it. Now, there's a reason that we're so vulnerable to that. You might think naively, oh, yeah, but we're very good at, you know, we can tell what's nonsense that's coming from this group or not. No, we can't. It turns out that we are terrible at differentiating signal from noise. We are very bad at separating the reprehensible from the reputable. And also we have other psychological effectors that uh, um, damage us. We have a thing called the availability heuristic. And this is the idea that we easily remember information that grabs our attention, that is recent or vivid or frightening. So if I go to some forum and I'm reading all this stuff about how great vaccination is and someone puts a post up going, yeah, well, my grandkid's daughter's friend had a vaccine and now she's in a wheelchair. 
I'm not going to remember all the stuff about how great vaccines are and how many millions upon millions of lives they have saved. All I'm going to remember is someone's unsubstantiated claim about uh, a wheelchair. And this is, again, uh, we have this also thing called, um, we, ha- we have a negativity bias too. We're far more prone to remember scary things than we are to remember sober-headed analysis. All of this plays in to the hands of the uh, anti-vaccine movement. And the final bit of the puzzle which causes problems is we have a thing called illusory truth. And this is the idea that no matter how well-educated you are and no matter how well-informed you are, a constant exposure to a falsehood makes you far more likely to implicitly accept it, even when you know it to be false on an intellectual level. In fact, Napoleon is famously said to have uh, claimed that the only figure in rhetoric worth a damn was repetition. And well, there's a certain God, level of God knows that. the leader of the United States has <laughs> learned. Fake news. Well, I mean, Fake news. Yeah, but you've said you've, you've said a lot there. Like it's all it it all you know it it all uh, it, it all ties in. I mean, in a way, I was I was laughing to myself as you were talking, thinking that to use the internet, to be allowed to use the internet. You should have to, every time you log on, do a 10-minute se- session with a psychologist just to explain all the uh, the forces that will be working against them receiving information in the right way. And, I mean, I always joke on my podcast that the internet ha- has been the best and worst thing that's ever happened to society. But the funny thing is that the way you describe the way anti-vaccination information um, plays well on the internet is is basically the way that the internet drives everything, you know, clickbait, et cetera, et cetera. It all ties in with this. It all ties into those psychological things that you're talking about. Mm. Oh, absolutely. And like, we, we, we don't seem to realize how we all, like, for example, you ask anyone you've ever met, are they susceptible to advertising? And they'll tell you, no, I'm not. Well, yes, they are because the advertising industry has known that for years and has exploited. The internet is advertising on speed with an eight ball of cocaine and everything else in the system, right? It it appeals to our worst vices and our on our on our biggest insecurities, and it does it on a level we're not even consciously aware of. Another example that we see is kind of what we call the echo chamber or the filter bubble effect, right? So, for example, years ago, if you had some mad theory that you know, say Bill Gates is microchipping us with vaccines, let's say you went into the pub and you told your friends this, your friends would be like, "Dude, no." Absolutely not, right? And you'd have some level of social cohesion that might stop you getting into that. If I go into the internet now and I look that up, I will find forums of hundreds of thousands, millions of people who not only echo that belief, they reinforce it, they strengthen it, and they make you more likely to evangelize it. Mm. So the internet plus 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 you get a sense of belonging, right? Suddenly you 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 feel like you belong to this this new cohort of people that understand something. If you want to understand why people are so susceptible to conspiracy theories, because I'm asked a lot by media outlets, how do I make, you know, now people go, oh, my cousins become a conspiracy theorist. How do I address them? And you have to realize what motivates people. And you've hit the nail on the head there by saying, actually, sense of belonging is a major thing. The other thing is a sense of understanding, this thing called um, epistemic certainty, where the world is uncertain. It's stochastic. It is frightening to think that a lot of events in our life are random and a lot of stuff happens by happenstance. We don't like that. We have an aversion towards that. So if I give you a sinister narrative, let's say it's about vaccination or or government control or something else, even though that doesn't on the surface seem to be reassuring belief, that can be weirdly paradoxically 
reassuring to some people because it gives an idea that someone's in control and they know about it and therefore they have some power. So it can give the very powerless a sense of control. This is why conspiracy theories always hold so much allure, particularly to people who don't feel that they have much power. Uh, the other thing that also does is it makes things simpler. You'll notice these kind of anti-vaccine narratives are very simple. There's no, there's no nuance to them. It's like there's good guys, bad guys. And real life doesn't really work that way. I mean, I wish it did. But, but, <laughs> but the thing is that what, what they have on their side and what I hate about the fact is when you try to argue about the positives of vaccination is their bad guy is genuinely a bad guy in that there are elements of the pharmaceutical industry that are, I mean, I don't want to use the word sinister, but they haven't been great. They haven't, they have at times withheld information. Purdue has just paid whatever, 350 million people on a civil suit. You know, you have these examples of bad corporate practice from the pharmaceutical industry, which helps them to say, how can you support, quote unquote, big pharma? Oh, absolutely. And that's where the nuance comes in. So big pharma companies are, you know, but what I was pointing out in the vaccine issue, we go, oh, big pharma companies are all about the money. I'm like, yeah, if they were all about the money, they wouldn't bother with vaccines because they're less than 1% of their yearly yield. Because you use a vaccine once, maybe twice, or maybe once a year. There's no money in that. The research costs are huge. No, this is why often governments have to step in to subsidize vaccine development. Because pharma companies are like, who are concerned about profits, let's be fair. They'll be like, nah, we don't want to build that because, you know, it's old tech or it's, it's, or else it's just not very profitable. It's much better to give you a drug you take for the rest of your life. Or, you know, they can, for them, it makes back their investments. The other thing I will say in pharma companies, limited defense, some of their practices are terrible, is they exist kind of because of us, Right. It costs billions upon billions to bring a drug to market, to go through all the safety regulations. And they are like all the, when you talk about pharma companies being fined, they're being fined after regulators, which is the FDA or the European drug agencies go, hang, hang on, this is nonsense. Most of the drugs they develop will never be brought to market. Will never, they'll spend billions and it'll go nowhere. And then they're trying to recuperate their expenses off maybe the one or two drugs they have that, that actually do work and that they can show work and the regulators approve. I would also argue, and I know this is, I'm, as an academic and a scientist, I'm obviously biased here. I would argue that we'd have a lot less of that if we spent a lot more of our money publicly funding health science. We don't. We spend a tiny amount of our public monies on research. If we spent more, we'd get a lot more. We're actually asking pharma companies to fill in the gap for what we don't fund. And, you know, that is not ideal. I mean, we could get a whole different episode where I go to rant about that, but I won't even get started now. But I will say is, we could make this a much better world and you know people's suspicions of pharma companies could be massively alleviated if we realize that this is the whole incentive we've set up and it could be better so while pharma companies are not great they're filling a need that we don't fund uh, and they're also regulated which is more than i can say for a lot of people like i mean if they lie and they get caught out which they often do uh, it's a problem but when it comes to vaccines they don't want to build vaccines vaccines are worth really nothing and a lot of the money on the current development that the companies like Pfizer and all that have done a lot of it has come from public partnerships because otherwise it wouldn't be worth their while even researching a vaccine even for something like COVID and that's the crazy you know do bottom you, line version of it do you have a quick uh a quick explanation for how this uh what is it mRNA how this new technology is different Ooh, okay. I'm I mean, not you, by the way, if you don't do have understand that, it. If, if you don't have that, that's totally fine. I'm just throwing that at you because 
I keep, you know, like Sanjay Gupta's on CNN and they, they talk about it, but I was just, yeah. I was... I, I can but, give you a very quick hand-wavy non-immunologist version of Yeah, it. okay. But yeah, essentially, to date, most vaccines have been built either on attenuated or dead virus or on, say, um, versions of the chemical signatures of that virus. So the very simplest version of vaccination. Imagine that, um, you know, you have some kind of, your body's a nightclub. Your immune system is kind of like the bouncer and the enforcer. Now, if someone comes into your club and trashes the place, it's not so great, right? Because, you know, you, you have to spend a lot of time fighting that. If you had a picture of that person and trained all your bouncers to recognize them before they got in, happy days. That's essentially what vaccination is in a very dumbed down, simplistic version. And today, the way we've done that is we've used attenuated virus or, or dead virus, actual elements of the virus itself to train your immune system to recognize it with the mnra ones we don't we find a signature that is on that coating and without even having to use any active virus we can train the, the immune system to do stuff with that that is a very hand wavy reduced version that we look for a different signature which doesn't involve attenuated or dead virus which ironically has upset the anti-vaxxers to some extent too because one of their big uh, tenants was always like they could always try to imply that vaccines might be dangerous because they could say, oh, they use bits of virus or they use, you know, and that sounded scary. Now they can't even say that. And so all they'll turn into is um, they hear um, mRNA, they go, oh, it's, it's changing your DNA. Yeah. And, and no, it isn't. It is not at all. And, but, but even, even, even they're the, scraping the barrel. But even the the average punter who's who's hesitant just needs to say, well, this is a new technology that hasn't been tested. I want to see if it works first. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what I always say to people as well, I think the big fear, and I think you have to realize that vaccine hesitancy is a spectrum. It's not just anti-vaxxers versus everyone else. There are people that are anti-vaccine. They're the, up to 16% of the population who are never going to accept vaccination and will always go against it. Um, 5 to 16% of the population, depending on where you take your surveys, are, are in that cohort. Then you have people that are reluctant and can be persuaded then you have people that are generally positive and are easier to persuade, and then you have people like me who sign me up and inject me whatever you want, right? <laughs> so you have you have all that. But what happens is anti-vaccine hesitancy is a spectrum, and the reason why the anti-vaxxers do so much damage is all they're not turning other people into anti-vaxxers; they're spreading fear. So, for example, with the HPV vaccine in Ireland, 
most of the people not vaccinating their kids weren't died in the wool anti-vaxxers. They were really scared parents trying to do the best for their kids. And they were coming across this scary stuff that was pushing them down the spectrum towards rejection. They're like, ooh, I don't know. Um, I don't know if this sounds scary and better the devil better the devil we know. You know, that's all they have to do. And that could be reversed. That's good news. That can be reversed with information and things like that. So let's talk about people who are afraid that this vaccine has been rushed out. Okay. Well, that's an absolutely understandable fear. If you go, wow, it's so fast. I mean, the last time we had a vaccine this fast took four years. Well, there's a few different things this time. Firstly, the technology MNRA, we've known about it for a long, a long time. We've just had no impetus to really be able to research it in this level. Because again, there was no money and there was no you know, central motivation to do so um, from a very bottom line kind of perspective. But now we have a pandemic that has paralyzed the whole world. Most of us have lost a year of our life. And people go, God, this is really important. There has been public money suddenly found out of nowhere funnily enough, to go and go to scientists and researchers, okay, look at this, please, right? So you also have another thing. One of the big bottlenecks for vaccine development is not just that. It's also the fact it's really hard to get volunteers for trials. We've had no problems with COVID. Everyone is volunteering. I've volunteered for two, and they, they were oversubscribed. They're like, go away. Uh, also, I was too far away from them. It was my old university, Oxford, doing one, so I did volunteer myself. But they're like, you're in Ireland, stop. So there's all this kind of stuff you have that bottleneck is removed the funding bottleneck has been absolutely removed and the, the pure manpower person power bottleneck is gone too we have never seen this many people working on a common problem mm. during the months of covid there's been more scientific publications than ever in history what you're seeing is a world effort and it is amazing that we've done it this quickly but the technology was understood. The, the concepts have been understood for 300 years. The MRNRA about 20 or 30 years. Bringing us together, it sounds new, but it's actually just what would happen if we took the bottlenecks out of everything. And that's incredible. I think that's a good news story. And yeah, and in a way, because, you know, all through this, you know, back in the HPV vaccine and just reading and listening to different things about uh, vaccine hesitancy, most of the stuff that I was hearing was, it's going to take a lot of death for people to remember the importance of vaccination. Is this, 100%. I mean, is this the event that will certainly uh, go some of the way towards bringing people back on board with the importance of vaccinations? You know, it's a really good point. Um, com this will definitely skew complacency, but there's a dark side to it too as well, because again, anti-vaccine activism is undergoing a renaissance. This is a good time when people are talking about vaccination for them to get in early and frighten people. So there's a paper done by one of my colleagues a, a, few, a few years ago that found you can immunize people against disinformation to an extent. And the same way, like vaccination, if you explain to them before they're exposed in the wild, they can spot like, oh, that's an anti-vaccine trope or that's not true. They're very good at doing that. However, it's much harder to undo that damage if they've already been exposed. So while I'm happy that this will reduce our societal complacency about vaccination. I'm also concerned that we still haven't worked out how uh, the concept of information hygiene. I'll get into that in a sec. But we're still very susceptible to anti-vaccine activism. And they are bolstering their numbers. I believe in two months between August and uh, October, anti-vaccine disinformation on Facebook increased by a factor of three. 
like it's it's huge and it was already bad so this is groundswell of that kind of stuff as well which will get new converts and who will become a royal pain in the ass in time as well but i think what the really important lesson and i mean i i, I again I, I wrote a book on this recently called the irrational ape and it's being released in america as good thinking next year the irrational ape yeah that's, that's the book i wrote about this because it really it's not just about vaccination it's about how we parse information it's about critical thinking the only shield that we have against this is critical thought and analytical thinking and the reason for that is there is no way like the internet is a pandora's box and we've opened it we cannot close it again and we have now a problem we've always had we've been always poor at differentiating you know nonsense from noise but now it's on such an industrialized scale that we are all being hit by claims that polarizes, that frighten us. And, and, and we don't have the tools to separate these out, and it's causing us severe harm. So one of the arguments I, I've, I've always made is long-term, the only solution is that we improve our critical thinking. But short-term, we can do things like information hygiene. And this is the idea. We've, we've all got used to physical hygiene during COVID. We say we, we keep our distance from new people. We wash our hands. We are very careful not to infect other people. You can do the same with information. I'm exposed to information. Firstly, you've got to be careful about what you're exposed to because information is pathogenic. There's a reason we call it viral disinformation. It works the same way, right? You have to realize that you are susceptible and you have to take steps to go, I'm not going to go onto that anti-vaccine forum, maybe because even though I think I'm a really rational person and logical, you know, this could do me harm or could do someone else harm. Yeah, I have you the same thought process when I Google myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, never Google yourself. Never do. Um, and it's like, you imagine that, Information hygiene is like wearing your PPE when you're exposed to information. You treat everything really skeptically. You don't accept it until it's been verified and validated and you can get like three different references for it. And then you definitely, definitely don't spread it. You don't share something unless you are absolutely sure that that is pristine, reliable, and not infected. And people do it with the best of intentions. Oh, I'll just share this article because I thought you might like to know because I read this. Well, you've already just sent on a pathogenic bit of information that might harm you or me, but could harm someone else. So we need to treat information as every bit as deadly as a virus. And I know that sounds very cynical and very serious. People go, it's only a Facebook article or it's only a post. And yet we've seen the damage that can do. In Berlin alone this year, one of their anti-mask protests in the middle of lockdown, they had 17,000 people coming out there. They're all over the world. Like, and all these people had been exposed to disinformation and had decided to act on that. And that is just a little taster of how bad it could be. Yeah. And it was, it was, it it was interesting to see the, the crowds gathered, they they gathered in Dublin. You see them here in the United States. And I, very early on in this conversation, I was thinking that the stereotype back in the day was the middle-class mum who, after dropping the kids off at school, goes to the coffee shop and they all tell each other about their yoga class and how uh, natural stuff is good and vaccines are bad, right? That was kind of the stereotype of where this misinformation spread. But now I look at these groups and I see kind of like like, like an aggressive male energy, anti-establishment, anti-government. I, you know, I mean, obviously Jim Core is a total whack job, but Jim Core is... is, is uh, at the forefront of what is like a large amount of angry people. They really, the, the anti-establishment people have seemed to have really tied their mass to anti-vaccination. They have, it's an unholy union. You see, the, one of the things I found, I was writing about the anti-mask protests recently, and what I find really interesting is ostensibly 
These are about the impositions of lockdown, right? Ostensibly, on the surface, that's what they're about. But if you look at the banners there, there's banners for QAnon, the group that obviously believe that a satanic pedophile group are running the United States. There was banners for anti-5G stuff. There was banners for anti-vaccine stuff. And I found that really interesting. This is cross-fertilization of conspiratorial thought. Anti-establishment motives, absolutely. That's one of the biggest things. Although your stereotype might be quite accurate in some instances. So a study of French anti-maskers found that they were predominantly female, like 54% female, and they were united, even though they were from very politi different political backgrounds and different things, they were all united by the idea that they were um, free thinkers, that they weren't going to be told what to do by the government. They weren't going to be told what to do by scientists. So it's funny how that banner can unite a lot of people. And one of the things I should point out for your listeners, because I think this is amazing, uh, I have a chapter in my book called Schrodinger's Bin Laden, and I, I call it that for, for a very good reason. There was a study done by a, a colleague and friend of mine, Karen Douglas, a few years ago, looking at conspiratorial thinkers, of which anti-vaxxers are obviously one. To believe in the anti-vaccine stuff, you have to believe there's a scientific conspiracy. It is your obligate to be a conspiracy theorist. And they looked at these people who believed that... Um, that Osama bin Laden, they were given one narrative, Osama bin Laden was a patsy for the CIA, had been assassinated on their orders because he was one of their men. There's another one that he was secretly still alive, had faked his own death. And they did similar about Princess Diana, that the queen had killed her or that she had faked her own death. People that really believed there was conspiracy could believe all these narratives simultaneously. They could believe a narrative where Osama bin Laden was alive and dead at the same time, provided... They felt they had access to some special knowledge that they knew there was a conspiracy. All that mattered to them was that there was a conspiracy. And this is why you see inconsistency. Like most of the anti-vaccine stuff is, is inconsistent. I'll give you a classic example you see with COVID. People telling me, and I, I mean, I do, I do a lot with radio frequency and 5G, and I've had my heart broken trying to explain 5G to people this year. But one of the things I will say to people is this. They will tell me COVID is a hoax and it's caused by 5G and it's cured by homeopathy. And you're like, right, I'm going to stop you there for one second. All these claims you've made are inconsistent. You mentioned Jim Corr there. I believe he was tweeting very similar about this recently. And you're going, if, if you were really concerned about a real view and real understanding of the world, if you really were motivated by wanting to know something, you would immediately be able to go, no, these are inconsistent. These don't make sense together. The fact that they don't, tells you that their motivation is something else. They want to feel that they have a special understanding, that they're not going to be told what to do by the man, that that is what motivates them. And that you hit the nail on the head when you said anti-establishment. Absolutely. But, but there's a lot just, of them. We all, we all just want to feel special, David. <laughs> this is... Well, the, the, the maturity the, is realizing none of us are special. Well, We're well, all plebs. Well, the amazing thing about this on a serious level is that so much of it comes down to what is essentially basic instinctual drives of humanity, a sense of identity, a sense of belonging, a sense of importance. I mean, there's so much basic human psychology that's driving this behavior. And can I point out before you answer, how annoying is it when these conspiracy theorists tell you that you need to keep an open mind? There's an old adage about keeping up mind, but not so open that your brains fall out. And there's, there's a level of that in it. I, you know, you're right. It is human. And that's why, like, when, I, when I've been talking about this recently, I've been saying if you have conspiracy theorists in your family, the correct approach, it might feel like to go, you're wrong. That's ridiculous. It actually often isn't. The, the approach that I've had the most success with is going, why do you think that? 
And, and I mean, I, I wrote this a lot about this in my book. My last few chapters in the book are literally about dealing with this. And one of the things I really believe is that we do not change anyone's mind. We merely give people the tools to change their own mind and the freedom to do so. You cannot browbeat someone into, into changing their mind. What you can do is engineer a certain amount of doubt in their narrative and let them come to that conclusion. So, for example, I'm dealing with a hardcore anti-vaxxer and I might say, okay, why do you believe that? And they'll go in this thing and go, right. I said, okay, that seems really, really, so you find their real fear. I'll give you an example. During the HPV vaccine confidence crisis over here, I was giving a talk in Dublin and I'd gone to the pub after it with a few friends, as you do, and a bunch of the anti-vaccine protesters um, followed us there. And they were being a bit intimidating, but not so much. And they came out, one of them came over to me and I just got the impression they were a little bit more approachable or whatever else the other ones and they said can i talk to you i said sure sure so I said, they said grab a beer sit down so they sat down and this is a woman who told me uh, her story and her story was really complicated she'd had a very traumatic family life and she had a daughter who had gender identity issues all sorts of stuff going on and she'd come across this group basically told her it's all to do with the vaccine and i listened to her and her, her other daughter had illnesses that the doctors couldn't explain and I went, and I could see why she was rejecting medicine and thought, and I went, look, I said, this sounds dreadful. You've really been through a lot. I said, and you know, your daughter is sick, whether it's a physiological illness or psychosomatic illness, it's an illness and it needs to be taken seriously. And you've been dismissed. And I understand that. And I said, I agree with you on 99% of everything you've said. The only thing that I'd ask you to consider, I said, you think that this is due to the vaccine. And I think that the evidence suggests that it's not. I said, but no one is taking away the fact that your daughters are suffering. No one. I said, and she went away and she shook my hand after that. And I remember like, it was one of the strange things. I don't know about that woman if she ever changed her mind. But I think that was one case that someone came as anti-vaccine activist, spent an hour talking to me. And I hope that they went home with what I had said in their head and maybe did reconsider. But if I had just said to her, you're wrong, you're wrong, your beliefs are all stupid. There's not a chance that she'd ever consider that. She'd retreat back into her identity protective cognition and I'd never reach her. People see this with family members during COVID all the time. It's happening so often that people are like trying to deal with their cousin who's suddenly, or their uncle or their mom and dad or their partner who's suddenly become a conspiracy theorist over COVID. And often it's because people are scared. They're looking for reasons. They're looking for belonging. And you got to identify what their motivation is. And often if you do, they will abandon their weird belief. There's good studies that show if you give, if someone regains a sense of power and control, that they're less susceptible to beliefs they held. If I give you one example, I had a cousin, still have a cousin, still alive, bless him. And we were late in our late teens. He became very much conspiratorial thinker. And it, we fell out over it in a big way. And then he moved to America and I didn't see him so much. And I was over in Florida doing some work about five years ago. And I looked him up and I said, I knew he was living out near there. I said, hey, let's, let's meet up. And when I met up, I was stunned by this model of success. This guy was brilliant and he was happy. And we had drinks. We started talking. And he said, look, we got onto the subject of conspiracy theory. He said, I used to believe all sorts of nonsense. And he goes, and I believed it because I felt powerless. I felt that it explained, you know, why my life wasn't going the way I wanted it to. He said, and once I came to here, got a good job, and suddenly my life was good. I didn't need that anymore. He goes, and I realized that, you know, that whole community was, was keeping me down. It was, it was toxic. And that is a testament to my cousin's strength because a lot of people, when they leave these conspiratorial groups, um, they're ostracized, they're abused. 
it, it's like the social need is being filled. But he pointed out something I think that was very important. Once he had a sense of control and power over his own life, he didn't need this anymore. And I think that's a big thing to, to realize as well. Yeah, and I, 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 you can see that a lot even with the Trump stuff. And if anybody suggests that they should accept the election results, they get pummeled that they drank the Kool-Aid or whatever. So just two really, uh, two really quick things. The first thing is just because it was the HPV vaccine controversy that I, I first got to know you, I, it, I, I think it's amazing that you know that group because Ireland is so small. And, it, you know, everybody knows everybody that the initial success of the misinformation about the HPV vaccine made total sense to me because you take this regret Facebook page and these videos start going up and Ireland's so small. Everybody knows everybody. It seems like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening. And even even uh, like when I first saw them, I, I didn't even connect it to anti-vaccination originally. I just thought, oh, I, I didn't even know that there was an HPV vaccine rollout. And now look at this negative stuff. I, I didn't even pay any attention. It came and went. It, I didn't engage in it. I was just like, oh, that's awful. And people I knew were sharing it, right? Uh, of course. And then it becomes this this major problem. The HPV vaccine take up, uh, you know, drops below 50%. And it's like a real issue. Uh, when I got involved, I was amazed how angry these people were in regret. Uh, and now, all these years later, that the information has gone the other way and people realize that they were literally just, uh, uh, whatever reason people came to regret, they were an advocacy group for you know going against the HPV vaccine without evidence. Now, where's it all gone? Where are all the sick girls? So this is what I want to know. It's like, how is suddenly people stop getting sick? Oh, they never. And then this is amazing that you've, you've hit on something so important uh, for right now. And I, I, I think it's, it's a really interesting point. So let's break it down a little bit. So for people like me who are well used to the anti-vaccine movement, when I saw some of the names in regret of the steering committee, these weren't new names to me. Oh, right. These are people who are always anti-vaccine. So what they did was they capitalized on a new fear. So I think it's really interesting to point out what happened with it. The HPV vaccine is a vaccine that can prevent roughly 5% of all cancers. It, almost all cervical cancers are caused by HPV. And a lot of penile cancers, anal cancers, loads of stuff that you don't really want, head and neck cancers. This is a life-saving vaccine, and it's incredible. And we had a crisis with this because anti-vaxxers have never liked it. Um, of course, they got traction in some countries. They, there was a playbook. So in Japan in 2013, anti-vaccine activists did something very similar to what happened in Ireland. And they brought uptake down from 70% to 1% within a year. They destroyed the vaccine program. Um, and then it moved on to Denmark the year after. They brought the same activism, brought the, um, the thing down from 79% uptake to 17% within a year. Right? This is shocking. It came to Ireland under the same playbook. Now, these are very culturally different countries. But the models and the claims being made were the exact same. They were just translated and copy-pasted, sent in, right? Now, Ireland is a really interesting country because Japan is still suffering with this. It, it hasn't recovered its vaccine rate. Denmark is still struggling. Ireland has made a full recovery. We need to talk about why it made a full recovery. So we had 87% uptake initially, and then these claims began. And they followed the exact same playbook. There was a very 
ill-informed documentary put on Irish national TV that brought it into public, you know, public mind. And people, why would people lie? It must be the vaccine. And suddenly it became the talk of schools and everything else. Within a year, we had hit 50% coverage. Now, Ireland had a few different things going for it. Firstly, we immediately set up a HPV vaccine alliance, and that was uh, scientists like myself and media-facing people like myself as well. Uh, you had, you know, cancer charities. You had all the kind of public health bodies and the politicians got behind this and said, we are going to do consistent messaging why the vaccine is good, right? But we had something else. That did work very well. But we had something else, and um, we still were dealing with the devil you know thing. These scary stories people are reading about these girls in wheelchairs, all that stuff. They were hearing this and then maybe opting not to vaccinate because it was frightening. Oh, yes, you never know. And they were telling themselves, Asher, even if it's only a tiny risk, isn't it better to, to not take it? Right. But they weren't doing the risk calculation properly. The real risk was, what about your daughter getting cervical cancer or your son getting penile cancer? That was a real risk. Right. But people didn't see it that way. And there was a young woman called Laura Brennan who at 24 had been diagnosed with a terminal cervical cancer. And Laura was a brilliant person. And of her own behest, she couldn't get her head around the fact that there was a vaccine that would have prevented her cancer that some parents were not giving to their kids. She contacted the HSE, the Health Service Executive in Ireland, and said, hey, I want to do some campaigning. And my God, she was absolutely phenomenal. Laura was photogenic. She was charming. She was bloody great crack. She was the best. And she would say to parents, she was, the HPV vaccine saves lives. It could have saved mine. She would say, this beautiful woman looking into a camera telling me this, or she would say, I am the reality of an unvaccinated girl. You know, not this fiction. I am, right? Um, and Laura and I campaigned very much together, and I was in awe of her and very close to her, and she was brilliant. And when she passed away, aged only 26, um, in March 2019, there was public outpourings of grief and um, sympathy. But the legacy she has left is she captured people's hearts that made their mind align. And that's so important. You will never change someone's mind if you don't change their heart because we emote first and we reason later. And because of Laura's really selfless act, people suddenly realized that all this emotive anti-vaccine crap didn't even compare to the real emotive tragedy of losing someone that you love to cervical cancer. And that's the really important thing that we are, we are, we are irrational apes. We are emotional creatures who think we're being logical and often we're not. And sometimes we need a potent reminder. Ireland's uptake has now gone back up to the high 80s and 90s. And I would put, and I know we all work together on it, and Laura was always very generous with sharing credit, but I would say she was the captain of that effort. And without her, I don't think we would have done as well. I mean, it's almost saintly. I'm not a religious guy, uh, oh, and yeah, some 100%. people, some people she wasn't get either. But <laughs> <laughs> some people get some people get canonized for for uh, for a lot less. Uh, just to just to wrap it up, uh, uh, jumping off of that point, you would hope to a degree that the personal stories of COVID death. I mean, you don't want anyone to die of COVID, but you would hope that in in some instances. Uh, you know, people that think COVID is a hoax, people that are concerned about the vaccine, that their proximity to real tragedy of illness might also change uh, people's hearts. You would hope so. Um, and, you know, you don't wish anyone ill, for sure. Um, 
you'd hope that that has some kind of resonance where they realize this is the reality of it. And I mean, it depends how deeply invested in these conspiratorial beliefs people are, but I think that that is a potent reminder of, of what you're up against. And not that uh, the, there was an example of a Florida taxi driver whose wife and himself had been big um, advocates that COVID was a hoax. And then his wife died. And in, to his massive credit, he accepted that he had been wrong. And he went on radio and TV to say, please don't believe what I believed because my wife is gone now. You know, And you don't want anyone to suffer that. But I think we need to be reminded that there are massive human consequences to disinformation. There are massive consequences to misinformation. And these conspiracy theories, they're not just fun things that we can laugh at. They do us serious harm and we are far more vulnerable to them than we'd like to think we are. And we really, we need to learn to get better at that. And that is what I would like as the 21st century goes on, that we humans get much better at distinguishing misinformation from information for our own collective benefit. Yeah. I mean, when I was, I'm born in 1975, when I was still a child, we still got threatened that if we played in puddles, we would get polio. I think sometimes we need to get back into that kind of misinformation. <laughs> we need to remind yeah, yeah, people yeah. that, you know, it's very easy to get uh, diseases that will, uh, you know, kill a massive amount of people. Anyway. Oh, oh yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. Maybe we should play in puddles more as well. I mean, maybe <laughs> yeah, there should yeah, be more puddles. Build up some immunity. Uh, well, listen, thank you so much. I, I hit you up only yesterday. You, you you came on the pod. I just thought it was timely. I just thought now it's good to get the information out there, a, a preemptive strike, uh, p- perhaps. Um, so uh, when is the book coming out? Well, the book is out in Europe as The Irrational Ape, and it's coming out in America as Good Thinking in March next year. So of where course, can Irish people, I the, mean, my biggest listenership is in Irish, where, where, where can Irish people get the book? Uh, any any bookstores okay. will sell it or Amazon or anywhere they, they want to get it. And there's a nice quote from Richard Dawkins on the cover who said it's great and you should read it. He didn't say, he said it more elo- elo- eloquently than that. And what about obviously uh, more eloquently than me? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just, it's Saturday, you know. It's, you sh- you yeah, shouldn't even have to be eloquent. I'm, hung, I'm hungover. <laughs> <I'm just laughs> you should, through this. you yeah. shouldn't have to be eloquent or talking about vaccines. And then your your Twitter is what is your Twitter again? Um, at drg1985. At drg. And, uh, do you have an Instagram yeah. or no? I do, but I need, I need to set it up properly. So I'll say no for now. Okay, yeah, yeah. Like, you're, you're, you're a Twitter I lot, guy. I, I, I avoid get a lot Twitter. of anti-vaccine people. <laughs> I get a lot of anti-vaccine people. It's, it's, it can be a lot. So I do the way, just, just put everything it, on mute. I know that mental health is not your speciality, but just a word to the wise, Twitter is not good for your mental health. <laughs> you spend a lot of time there. <laughs> tw- tw- Twitter is appalling. And, and you know, all social media is bad. We just did a paper on this actually recently with them. Um, with uh, the late Laura Brennan, myself, and uh, Robert O'Connor from the Irish Cancer Society, during the during the summer it came out, and we looked at the kind of abuse that people got online for communicating health information, particularly about vaccination, and it did serious harm to people. I mean, it's definitely done damage to my mental health, and I've got to the point where I'm almost, I go on Twitter to share an article now. I do not hang around because if you hang around, you will just you'll 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 kind of want a, a nuclear war to take the whole planet. Like it'll just destroy your faith in humanity. And Actually, people I, I've become shared, very toxic too. I've shared on this podcast that I found out that I suffer with anxiety because of regret, because of the HPV piece that I did and the amount of pushback I got and the, and the stress yeah. that came with it. So positives and negatives, but yes, it is it is very difficult to deal with. Yeah, and I mean, I I, I have to say, like 
I don't talk about mental health much in, in public because I, I, I'm almost afraid of it being weaponized against me. If I tell people I have severe anxiety and things like that, uh, you know, I'm always afraid that that would be just music to the ears of the anti-vaccine movement. So what I do is the Irish thing. I pretend I don't care and just cry into a pint. <laughs> usual traditional way of dealing with our problems. Well, thank you so much. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have you on again at the next public health crisis. It'll be a pleasure. Oh, <laughs> oh, I look forward to it. No, maybe not so much. Des, great to talk to you. So thanks very much to David Robert Grimes. Really cool chat. I really enjoyed it. Um, I hope you guys did too. I think it's always good. Even if you're somebody that's very up on this, I think it's always good to have a refresher. It's never good to be complacent about the importance of this information. Um, I don't consider, I don't consider us like special that we're in the know about something. This is just getting the facts out there. Um, and I think he does, you know, he does a great, he has a great way of putting it out in ways that are understandable. Um, so that's it guys we'll see you we'll have an episode up Thursday I'm actually chatting to Lori Kilmartin who uh, has done some shows about losing her dad and then losing her mom very similar to myself so I thought we would we would uh, have a laugh about our dead parents which if you know me know uh, it's a a common theme of humor amidst the sadness so uh, we'll be back for that next week thanks so much for all the support guys do spread the word about this episode because I think it's very important. Share it as much as possible. And uh, I'll chat to you guys next week. Love you. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.